Welcome to another edition of Northwestern Outdoors Radio, the award-winning show covering fishing, hunting, conservation, destinations, and other outdoors recreation across the greater Northwest. Northwestern Outdoors is brought to you by Max Lur, Sportsman's Warehouse, Sina Sea Seafood, and Wallowa County Chamber of Commerce in the Northern Pike Minnow Sport Reward Fishery Program. And now, let's see what's happening this week with your host, John Cruz. Welcome to the show. We're starting things off talking Chinook salmon, the spring Chinook run, which had a good forecast of 86,000 fish this spring, has been very slow to materialize on the Columbia River. As of March 31st, less than 100 Chinook salmon had gone through the fish ladder at Bonneville Dam in comparison to last year when over 700 salmon had come in. This could mean the forecast is seriously off, or it could just be the fact we had a long winter and the water temps of the Columbia are still very cold and the fish will come in as those temperatures begin to rise. I'm hoping that is the case, and so are a lot of other salmon anglers who have not been able to catch any springers so far on the Columbia or Willamette Rivers, despite quite a bit of effort. And if you fish off the Oregon coast, south of Cape Falcon, it gets worse. The Sacramento River run of fall Chinook salmon has essentially collapsed due to several years of drought conditions and what the president of the Golden State Salmon Association, John McManus, says is poor water management by Governor Gavin Newsom's administration, which has prioritized agriculture over salmon. The run is forecast to be the lowest in 30 years, and the summer season for Chinook salmon has been canceled from Cape Falcon south to central California. I'll tell you what, it's a good thing we're getting a whole bunch of coho salmon this year to make up for that lack of opportunity. This week on the show, we'll be talking about salmon conservation with Trey Karskadin, the new president of the Northwest Sport Fishing Industry Association. Trey will talk about what this organization does to lobby for and represent angler interests and businesses associated with sports fishing. And we'll also talk about where things are at when it comes to potentially breaching those lower four Snake River dams. There's been a lot of talk about that. When those springers finally do come back into the Columbia and Willamette Rivers, you'll want to catch them. And Bob Loomis is back for another extended Max Minute to help you do just that. And let's not forget Steelhead. There is a winter catch-and-release steelhead season going on right now on the Skagit River in northwest Washington. It runs through April. And guide Nick Potosa, who lives right by that river and grew up there, will give us a current fishing report and preview some of the salmon fisheries we'll be seeing later this year on the Skagit River. After that, we'll head to Boise, Idaho, where the Idaho Department of Fish and Game has its headquarters and where Public Information Supervisor Roger Phillips works. We'll chat with Roger again, this time about a couple of different lakes and fisheries found in them to include Dvorak Reservoir in north-central Idaho, and Ponderay Lake way up in the Panhandle. And with the big game season set for the year, we'll also find out if we can expect to see any changes this fall. Last but not least, the winter in Wyoming and eastern Idaho has been a long one and a tough one. And we'll share some troubling news about the state of the pronghorn and mule deer herds in western Wyoming as we try to shake off winter and get into spring. Before we get into all this, though, let's check in with David Sparks and see what he has in store for us this week on Sportsman Spotlight, brought to you by the Ag Information Network of the West. Magic Valley Energy is seeking authorization to use BLM-managed public lands in southern Idaho to construct 
Operate, Maintain, and Decommission the Lava Ridge Wind Project. David Sparks, Sportsman Spotlight. This project is going to be massive in terms of using public lands. Given that its infrastructure that is proposed within the corridors is estimated to have a 2,374-acre footprint and a total disturbance area of 9,114 acres. Gray Weber, a resident of Dietrich, Idaho, has some concerns. This is a plan for one of the biggest wind farms, if not the biggest wind farm in the world. But the biggest thing is that it's not on a private piece of property, it's on public land. Right now you can probably count six or seven hundred antelope circling us. Idaho Fish and Game has all the data of collar and big game from Craters of the Moon down through this sage corridor. And it's one of the biggest wintering corridors for big game in the state of Idaho. And I think the biggest problem is going to be during the construction phase if this does go through. Big game animals are a big fan of being left alone. They're just going to go to the areas of lower population. So whether that's here on this haystack, whether that's in your backyard, whether that's on your freeway or your local highway, how are the farmers and the wildlife going to coexist? And isn't that how everything seems to go these days as populations of humans explode and ultimately impinge on animal habitat? A green energy project should be a favorable step towards preserving the planet, but as Weber points out, it may come as a cost to fish and game. You've probably been told that to reach a millennial farmer, you have to go digital. Hmm. Facebook, Vimeo, YouTube, Instagram, Pinterest, LinkedIn, an online publication, or maybe a podcast. Hmm. But which one? Oh, and how receptive is this age group to your sales pitch during non-work social time? Maybe the best place to reach a farmer with a farming solution message is when they are, well, quite frankly, farming. You know, it's easy for us to find them during the day as most farmers are behind the wheel of a pickup truck or farm equipment with the radio on listening to this station for the Ag Information Network of the West News. If you'd like to deliver information about your terrific product or service, give us a call and we'll connect you directly with our community of loyal farmer listeners. Reach real farmers right here, right now as they listen to what is important to their farm operation. They trust us. They'll trust you. David Sparks, Sportsman Spotlight. Backcountryhunters.org. Join the fight for our public lands and waters today. back in with Northwestern Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz. Our next stop is Northwest Washington. The Skagit and Sauk Rivers are open for catch and release steelhead fishing, which is a wonderful thing because we get so few opportunities to catch these magnificent fish. The fish, by the way, is actually the official state fish for Washington. Now, with me here to tell us more about this is Nick Potosa. He is a full-time fishing guide who loves to catch steelhead. Nick, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on this morning. I appreciate it. So how has the fishing been since it's opened up? Well, the fishing's been excellent, and I can tell you why. The river has been closed as the department has been working on getting our final permitting going for the catch-and-release season we're currently in. So if you can imagine a fish that's been coming in since late January and then all of a sudden opens up in the middle of March, fishing can be pretty darn good since the fish haven't seen anything. How long is this fishery scheduled to stay open? It's open five days a week until the end of April. Well, that sounds fantastic. I'm going to ask, but I think I know the answer. Do you have any openings at all? 
No, none for me. I do do various fisheries, you know. I fish the Skagit for kings, and then I also fish the Cowlitz for steelhead and other stuff like that. So I do have some other fisheries around, but as far as the Skagit thing goes, yeah, probably better luck next year, I'd have to say. That's more than fair. Now, you actually grew up right along the Skagit River, didn't you? I did. I grew up there since I was uh, seven years old. I graduated from Concrete High School, believe it or not, and uh, have spent my whole life. My dad was kind of one of those guys that loved to fish and tagged me around with him regardless of the weather or whether it was inclement or not. He just kind of threw me behind him and took me with him. And I think I just learned uh, I wanted to be better than my dad at fishing. So I competed, you know, with him continuously. Well, it must have worked out because now you're a full-time fishing guide. When it comes to catching steelhead on the Skagit River, the Sauk River, what's your go-to technique? I like to fish with beads. I either fish with beads or I fish with plastic worms. I'll start out with the beads. Beads are probably the biggest thing in steelhead fishing right now. They are extremely well at catching steelhead, and they're very versatile. They come in a lot of different sizes, a lot of different colors, and they look natural to a steelhead. I mean, these things are floating down the river. They look like salmon eggs, you know, and the steelhead pick them up, and, you know, they don't have hands, you know, so they got to pick them up with their mouth to take a look at them, and uh, that's where we reap the benefit of them. But I use 10% custom beads and they come in a multitude of sizes and colors in uv and glow colors which aren't available in a lot of beads as far as worms go the predominant colors i use are pink orange and black and i use mad river manufacturing worms any worm size from four to six inches whether on a jig head or drift fished on the bottom so question for you you know the skagit in particular can really muddy up after some rains it seems counterintuitive that a small offering like a bead would be effective when the water's colored. Are you using something else when that happens? Well, if we get a lot of color, that's when I'll really switch over to the worms. You know, a bigger profile, bigger presentation, larger, more aggressive fish will oftentimes target those worms when they're in the water. I think it just it's a lot of territorial response, so... You know, the fish is down there swimming away, and all of a sudden this big six-inch wobbly worm comes down, and it's just a natural instinct for them as a trout to grab onto that thing. But don't get me wrong, you'd be surprised at the kind of water you can actually catch fish in on with beads. I mean, even when the water's dirtied up, you can catch them, you know, on 10, 12-millimeter small rubber beads. And, yeah, I'm a, I'm a believer. I mean, I used to be that way where I'm like, man, I got to throw worms all the time. The water's kind of dirty, but beads, sure enough, man, they will they will change your mind when it comes to, you know, catching fish in off-color conditions. And that's where that UV and that glow-in-the-dark really comes into play that the beads that I fish with, for sure. Whatever happened to fishing with marabou jigs under floats? I mean, that that used to be all the rage. You know, I'm glad that you brought that up because it is, it's a fantastic way to still catch them. A lot of guys do do really well using either marabou jigs or a worm jig, which is, you know, a plastic rubber worm threaded on a jig head, fish the same way as you would, say, a marabou jig. And when the water drops down a little bit and starts to clear up and get really clear and the fish start to move out into the heavier water and the choppy stuff with the big rocks, you know, jigs can really do well. So I'm actually glad you brought that up because that's a that's an excellent technique as well for catching fish up there. Another old school technique I know a lot of guides like to use, especially out of drift boats, because they can control exactly where the lure's going to be and it makes it easier for the clients to catch fish, is back trolling plugs. Is that still a thing? Back trolling plugs is. You know, I'm glad you're bringing these things up because, you know, I, as, as anglers, we always get so one-minded, you know, and that kind of, for me, I've, I love to bead fish, I love to worm fish, but plug fishing can be a really successful technique 
just because you can put those plugs right in front of the fish and put it right in their wheelhouse. You can back them down, and you're always fishing when you're using plugs, you know. So it's, it's definitely a successful technique. Well, it's nice to know that as a dinosaur steelhead angler, I have not yet gone extinct. Dinosaurs rule, so good for my techniques, but I think I should learn some new tricks and probably get into bead fishing for better success. Bead fishing is a big one right now. I mean, from the Cowlitz all the way to Canada, I mean, bead fishing is pretty much almost the number one technique used for any anadromous fish. So let's turn our attention from the Skagit in Steelhead to just the Skagit River in general. So this year's a pink year. We're expecting a good number of pink salmon back, though I don't think they're getting as many as they hoped on the Skagit. And, of course, we've got the Kings that will be coming back, too. You know, looking back over the last 20 years, what's the state of the Skagit River right now in terms of being a successful river for fishing? Well, I'd love to tell you it's going amazing, and I'm going to tell you it's going amazing. And it's not just because, you know, I fish. You know, I love this river since I was a kid. And I can tell you that the state of the Skagit is accelerating, you know, especially our salmon fisheries. You know, we have our sockeye fishery that goes into Baker Lake that every year seems to be escalating in numbers. The Skagit River is also one of those Puget Sound rivers that's receiving the large amount of plants for Chinook for the orca whales. Right. So this year will be our first year back with full adult fish. And so we're expecting roughly around 1,500 to 2,000 more Chinook than we normally get in a hatchery return, which is a good number of fish, you know, back. Yeah, we're not talking about 50,000, 60,000 fish coming back, but, you know, 2,000 fish is, for kings is a lot of kings. So I'm hopeful for the Skagit. The, the salmon fishing is looking excellent, and the steelhead fishing is, is going well. Well, that's fantastic. And I should back up on the pinks. I think I actually got my rivers mixed up. I think maybe the Skagit is getting a healthy return this year, isn't it? Yeah, we're getting a pretty decent run. We're supposed to get around 600,000, which isn't the most I've ever seen, but it's enough to get us fishing. I'm not sure whether we'll get a, you know their usual four fish limit or what it might be, but I think we got enough to where we're going to have some opportunity, get the kids out, get the wives out, get the husbands out, get your neighbor out, get everybody out and get fishing and get rods bent over. So everybody loves humpies, myself included. So oh yeah, I can't and, wait. And you know what? You're right. It's the perfect family fishing trip when it comes to that because your success rate is usually high and everybody loves reeling a salmon no matter how big it is. Something Absolutely. to look forward to there. Uh, again, king salmon fishing, steelhead fishing, pink salmon fishing. Didn't even talk about the Dolly Varden. And I guess I haven't heard much about the Dollies. You know, I, I know that if you catch them, you have to release them. But how has that been going on the sock and the Skagit? Well, that was the, the big cause of debate for the final approval um, for the Skagit system was the Dolly Varden population. But we still have a large population of Dollies that are in the Skagit. And this time of the year, they're migratory. And so they're migrating down the Skagit following the smolts out to the salt you know, feeding on them. So there's a lot of opportunities, you know, to catch them. All right. Well, as you can hear, folks, things are looking up on the Skagit River, and that is good news because it's uh, one of the Northwest's most iconic rivers. It's a, a great waterway. It's a great river to fish and explore. And if you want to do it with Nick Potosa, just go to his website. You'll find that at PotosaFishing.com. That's PotosaFishing.com. He's a full-time guide. He grew up on the Skagit, and he knows it probably better than anybody else. Nick, thanks for sharing all of this with us today on Northwestern Outdoors Radio. Thanks. I appreciate it, and I uh, hope you have a great day. And everyone listening, I hope you go out there and get fish.
Sportsman's Warehouse is America's premier outfitter with the gear you need for fishing, hunting, camping, paddling, cooking, and just about anything else you can do in the woods or in the water. With over 125 stores across America, there is bound to be a Sportsman's Warehouse near you with not only the gear you need, but also the experts to help you get the most out of the product you purchase. Head down to your local Sportsman's Warehouse today or shop online anytime at sportsmans.com. That's sportsmans.com. Welcome back to Northwestern Outdoors Radio and to an extended Max Minute, brought to you by Max Lure. Last week, we were talking to Bob Loomis about the Max Scent Flash Flasher for Spring Chinook on the lower Columbia and the Willamette River. This week, we're going to talk about what lure to put behind it. Bob, welcome back. Thanks, John. So, what are we putting behind that flasher, and how much leader are we using for those springers this time of year? You know, I would guess that... You're looking at 38 to 42 inch type leaders with products that you're not having to create their own movement. Okay, so if you're if you're running a herring behind the triangle flasher, you can go a little bit longer with it because obviously the triangle isn't going to give you any movement anyway, and that the cut plug herring is going to give its own movement. With the paddle itself. I like using like 38 to 42 inches with a wedding ring prawn spinner this time of the year and set up a prawn on there. You've got high UV beads. Um, the top hook actually slides and will accommodate the size of prawn you've got so you can lay it out nice and straight. So it works extremely well with the paddle flasher. For this lower Columbia Willamette River fishery, what kind of prawn are you using on that? You know, there's what you call prawns, coon shrimp. You know, there's a number of different names for it. They're all virtually the same. But we're not talking like ghost shrimp that you dig up. Okay. No, you're talking about a coon shrimp, you know, something that's dyed, that deep, dark, reddish, purple color that works really well for attracting fish. Well, put some coon shrimp on a max prawn rig and tie that about a little over three feet behind a max scent paddle flasher. And you, ladies and gentlemen, should be in business for some springers this month on the Willamette and the Columbia. If you want to find these products, just go to maxlure.com or find them in quality sporting goods stores near you. Are you looking for a game changer to help you catch more trout, kokanee, and salmon? No problem. Just tie on Max Crip Lure. Cast it or troll it. Either way, its specially designed ring chamber emits a low-frequency vibration with its erratic movement. It will catch more fish and make them strike. Better still, the different colors for the lure can be matched to just about any fishery. Look for the Crip Lure from Max Lure Company at a sporting goods store near you or go online at maxlure.com. Want to go fishing and make money? You are in luck. This year's Pike Minnow Sport Reward Fishery kicks off May 1st. Just register at a check station and go fishing for 9-inch or longer northern pike minnow within designated waters of the Columbia or Snake River. Then you bring your fish back and collect a voucher good for a cash reward. The more fish you catch, the more they're worth. Catch a pike minnow with a special tag and you've landed 500 bucks. Find out more at pikeminnow.org. That's pikeminnow.org. Did you know we actually have a sponsorship opportunity available for this show? You can be a sponsor of Northwestern Outdoors Radio, reaching thousands of listeners every week, tuning into 69 stations in seven states. Contact me through my website at northwesternoutdoors.com and let's get a conversation started. That's northwesternoutdoors.com. 
You're back in with Northwestern Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz. We've got our old friend Trey Karskin in on the line. Now, usually when we have Trey on, we're talking about one of the great sportsman shows put on by O'Loughlin Trade Shows. But this time, we've got an entirely different topic. Turns out that Trey is the newly elected president of the Northwest Sport Fishing Industry Association. Trey, welcome aboard and congratulations. Well, thank you, John. Uh, it's good to be back. I was president, oh gosh, it was probably 15 years ago. That didn't last very long because I became the uh, association's lobbyist, and I turned the reins over to Dan Parnell. And after you know Dan retired from uh, the association, I was elected by the board to see the head for a couple more years. So let's talk a little bit about the Northwest Sport Fishing Industry Association. A lot of our listeners don't know what this organization does, though what uh, does have a major impact in both the state capitals of Salem and Olympia. It does, and as well as the federal government. So the executive director, Liz Hamilton, has been, she started it uh, 30 years ago, and uh, with a small group of folks from the industry that included uh, you know, Buzz Ramsey and Bill O'Loughlin and Guy Schoenborn and Tom Posey and a handful of others. And together they identified that, you know, if uh, we could be a promotional organization or we could get involved in the politics, and that seemed to be, you know, the thing that had the most benefit to the industry. So that's what we did. And our first big win, oh gosh, it was probably 94 or so, was uh, mass marking of salmon. Steelhead had been done previously, but salmon had not. Mass marking of salmon in the Columbia Basin. And, you know, to this day, that's what enables us to have the sports seasons that we have. And after that, it was, you know, the spill regimes on the Columbia. So we went to Judge Redden's court and argued for improved spill for the outmigration of the smolt down the Columbia. And we saw the benefit of that in early 2000s with historic returns. Every step of the way in every one of these major issues, and we've been involved in literally dozens of them, we have faced significant headwinds from all sides, including, you know, from sports anglers themselves that just thought it was a bad idea. And and at the end of the day, in all cases, whether it was, you know, the, the gillnet issue or, again, you know, mass marking, the crab licensing, a number of things, they've ended up being pretty good things. And we are a voice in every major fishery issue in the region. And we have full-time lobbyists in Oregon and Washington that are working constantly, not only with the commissions, but at the legislative level to do what we can do to kill legislation that can hurt us, policies that can potentially hurt us, and also, you know, working with uh, staff and legislators on ideas that will expand and improve sport fishing seasons. And folks, uh, the mission of this organization is simple. NSIA is dedicated to the preservation, restoration, and enhancement of sport fisheries and the businesses dependent on them. Now, one issue you've come out strongly on is the removal of the four lower Snake River dams. The NSIA is in support of this. That was gaining some momentum. It was actually introduced by a Republican congressman from Idaho, Mike Simpson, And Mm -hmm. under the Democrat-controlled Congress, it was really gaining some steam. But now the House has flipped, and you have two of the local representatives, Kathy McMorris-Rogers and Dan Newhouse, that are dead set against it, primarily for economic reasons. What's the status of this? I'm guessing that things are probably at a stalemate right now. You know, in fact, Liz is on the call right now, but there's a meeting going on right now with the Biden administration on gaining input from... uh, 
sports anglers and on kind of where they're at. Uh, there's headway literally being made every day. I personally got involved in this issue in the mid-90s and made several trips back to Washington, D.C. lobbying this. It died in the early 2000s, and it came back uh, a couple of years ago, thanks to uh, Representative Simpson. Interestingly, this is probably the biggest rural economic opportunity that we've seen in for the Northwest that we've seen in, in my lifetime. The opportunity to have on a down year, a year that where abundance is relatively low and ocean conditions aren't great, it will be as good as the best year that we've had you know, in my lifetime, which was 2001. It's pretty exciting. And the good years, when everything comes together and we have uh, great out-migration and, and good ocean conditions and all that, will be in excess of a million springers coming back. More importantly, will be the benefits to the wild stocks, which are in large part a constraining factor of a lot of our fisheries. So if you have a significant increase in Snake River Wilds, for instance, then the opportunity to fish through April on the Columbia River is something that we can realize in our lifetime. Same thing for sockeye. You know, a constraining factor on those has been Snake River Wilds. And to see all of these stocks potentially bump up and for your fall fishery to have a Hanford reach that would be two, three times larger than what we have right now going up the Snake River would just be amazing. So, you know, the promise that this holds for salmon steelhead, and Simpson gets it. That's the thing is he, he knows that the cost of inaction is greater than the, than the cost of action. And so he sees the writing on the wall. He knows something needs to be done or his constituents, which are the farmers relying on water and, you know, all the other folks that use the river are going to be constrained because of ESA, which is Endangered Species Act, that will limit how this river is used. So it's potentially one of the, well, it certainly is the biggest fishery issue right now in the country. Liz is literally at the table with the administration, and we really feel like something's going to happen. And to, you know, to be clear, you know, these aren't easy issues. I, I worked on the Gilnet issue for 35 years. It was 35 years of my life, starting when I was in college. And really what that did is it, it gave us, you know, uh, extended our season. There was a definite benefit as a result of that. And, you know, we're still to some degree working on that and shaping it. But any of these issues are very difficult. They're contentious. You know, there's lots of stakeholders involved. But we do know in particular with this one, John, that the goal that Simpson has is that everybody comes out of it better than they went in. So any of the affected communities are going to be dealt with. You know, there's going to be water for the farms. There's going to be the folks in the Port Lucent will have jobs in the Port of Tri-Cities. The, the benefits to tourism and wildlife habitat will be incalculable. And, and it will benefit communities from Riggins, Idaho, into southeast Alaska. Again, the biggest rural economic opportunity in, in our lifetime in the Northwest. Well, there you go, folks. I was hoping to talk about the Sacramento River Salmon Run, the collapse of the Fall Chinook Run there and why that's going on. But we are out of time, so we'll have to leave that for another time. But if you want to find out more, folks, about the Northwest Sport Fishing Industry Association, go to their website. You'll find it at nsiafishing.org. That's nsiafishing.org. They've got several events where you can support them. They've got an online auction where you can support them. And there's other ways to get involved as well. Trey, congratulations again on becoming president of this organization, and keep up the good work. Thank you so much, John. 
As always, all this talk about salmon always makes me hungry for seafood. And with the Springers hard to come by right now and the outlook for Fall Chinook very grim off of much of the Oregon coast, what is a salmon-loving foodie to do? Well, you can always order from our friends at Cena Sea Seafood. That's the family-run company who catches wild Alaskan salmon and halibut and sablefish and more packages them carefully and delivers them right to your doorstep and they've got something new for you snow crab and bared eye snow crab have been very very hard to find because the population crashed in the bering sea this year but they've got some available and we're talking about three legs and one claw on the shell each cluster weighs 12 to 14 ounces they are pre-cooked individually frozen absolutely ready to crack and eat as soon as you get them. Better still, these are all wild and sustainable crab. They were never farmed, so you know you're getting the best. If you want some hard-to-find Alaskan Baradise snow crab, just go to SinaSea.com. That's S-E-N-A-S-E-A, SinaSea.com. And don't forget to use the promo code OUTDOORSRADIO to get 10% off your entire order. are getting a raise this year with the Northern Pike Minnow Sport Reward Fishery Program and the fish are biting. Here's how it works. First, register at a pike minnow station along the Columbia or Snake River. Next, go fishing for pike minnow and bring back all of them that measure 9 inches or longer. The fish are worth 6 8 or $10 and the more fish you catch, the more each one is worth. Keep an eye out for tagged fish too because those are worth 500 bucks. Go fishing, make money, and have fun. Find out more at pikeminnow.org. Welcome back to Northwestern Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz. It is time for one of our regular check-ins with the Idaho Department of Fish and Game because there's always so much going on in the gem state. With us again is Roger Phillips. He's the public information supervisor for the agency. Roger, great to have you back. Always great to be here, John. A few things have caught my eye recently in terms of your press releases. A great article that one of your biologists wrote about the state of Dvorak Reservoir's fisheries. And Dvorak Reservoir, it's in Clearwater Country, north-central Idaho. It's known for smallmouth bass. It's known for kokanee. It's known for trout. Why don't you break down how those fish are doing? Well, you know, it's an interesting one because it's another one of our, our large lakes and reservoirs that are kind of driven by that kokanee population, which is both the a popular fishery for anglers and also, you know, kind of feeds a lot of other fish. So for the, the kokanee, we're looking at good populations. And the irony with kokanee is too many is a bad thing because then they're too small. They don't get hooked very well. You know, you have a bunch of seven-inch fish out there. So we really pay attention to how many fish are out there, and things are looking a little better for the kokanee this year. We're going to have more of those bigger fish, more than likely. And then revolving quickly to the smallmouth bass, when we have lots of kokanee, we got some huge smallmouths, and we had a state record come out of there this year. So for a trophy smallmouth bass fishery, 
you know, lots of kokanee is a really good thing. And then, yeah, like you mentioned, we've also got rainbow trout in there. And it's always seemed to odd to think of rainbows as like a bycatch. But in this case, <laughs> sometimes it is. But they're out there, too. And, you know, people can go catch those. Well, and the great thing about the rainbow trout at Dvorak is that's the one species you don't need a boat for. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, it's a big reservoir. So there's lots of places where people can both go by boat. And we've got, you know, areas that aren't as bank accessible, but then we have areas that are. So we got a nice state park right there on the on the banks. And yeah, people can really enjoy that one. All right. Well, let's head further north to Lake Pond Array. Understand that Idaho Department of Fish and Game is going to start netting walleye. This is not the first year it's happened. What's going on here? What's the walleye situation in the lake and why are you netting them? Well, walleye is something that we never wanted, but we got. They came downstream. And the interesting about Ponderé is similar to Dwarshack is we've got a lot of kokanee. We've worked really, really hard to restore those kokanee populations. And we also have a large predator base that are also very valuable. You know, we've got those huge rainbow trout that live in there. And so the the bottom line is that we want to really limit how many predatory fish we have in there so we can maintain the ones that we have. And since we don't want walleye in there, we go in there and actively net those to remove some of those and try and keep that population as low as possible, knowing that we're never going to get rid of them, but try to keep that population from taking off. You know, that's really interesting you put it that way. It it makes me remember a conversation I had several years ago with a a retired Wyoming big game biologist. And speaking of predators, he said, you know, young gullets, they can survive one predator like the cougars. They can survive a second predator like the bear. But then when you introduce a third predator like the wolf, sometimes things go south, especially when they're unregulated and uncontrolled. And so it sounds like this is the same sort of thing, except we're talking fish predators like walleye and the big rainbows. And there's there's lake trout in there too, isn't there? Yeah, there is. And there's also bull trout, you know, not to mention the smallmouth bass and, and things like that. So you have a lot of fish that rely on eating other fish. And, you know, the prey base kind of defaults to those kokanee, which, like I said, is an important fisheries too. So it, it's maintaining that balance that is really tricky and really hard to do in a giant lake like that. But our guys and gals have, you know, done a really good job of that. And it's just a matter of trying to to find that balance and say, this is what we're striving for and aiming toward it. And in this case, it's not walleye. April 13th, there's a meeting open to the public. Where is that at? It's about the state of the lake right now. And and what do you expect the folks are going to say about the state of the lake? Well, that's another one where, you know, we work very closely with our anglers up in that area to find out what they want and also to share our data with them. And we've had some great experiences up there with our citizen scientist program where people go out and fish and they keep logs and they tell us how many fish they caught and how big they were and things like that. And that really helps us. And so what we're doing, and we're constantly out there doing surveys, And, you know, we want to share that data back with people so that they can understand what we're doing and why and how they're a part of that and how they're a very important part of that. So we really like to keep in touch with folks, give them this opportunity to come in and really learn about management of that lake. All right. And by the way, folks, that meeting is actually taking place in Ponderay at the Ponderay Events Center. It's going to be from 6 to 8.30 a.m. So if you're listening and want to attend, that's when and where to go. Moving on to big game hunting seasons, the commission has just set them. 
what changes are we going to see for resident and non-resident hunters in 2023? You know, we're not seeing a lot of big changes overall. This was kind of a, you know, keep it steady at the wheel here. You know, we always tweak some tags here and there. I think probably some of the biggest news is what we didn't do. And that was earlier we had discussed reinstituting some of the antlerless tags that we have held off from in eastern and southeast Idaho because of some hard winters in recent years. And then guess what we just had again, a really hard winter. We're still in it. So what we didn't do is add a bunch of those antlerless tags back. We want to kind of preserve that doe population as much as possible and cow population so that, you know, when we get it, when the weather cooperates a little more, those herds are able to rebound a little more quickly. Let's talk a little bit about uh, predators in Idaho. You and I have talked about this before, about how wolves are affecting elk populations, particularly in uh, Frank Church, River of No Return Wilderness. And I'm still hearing this is an issue. Is it an issue or not? Well, you know, predators are always going to be a part of, of what we manage. And, you know, it's unfortunately, there's never a blanket. Yes, it is that we can pinpoint and say, yes, it is this. So if we fix this, then all our problems are solved. It's always a variety of things. But predator management is something that, that we've taken a fairly aggressive stance on. And, you know, when we think that they are what's holding back some of our deer and elk herds, we're not afraid to go in there and make changes. And we've got a pretty long history of that with liberalizing wolf regulations, with adding two tags to some areas where we think that they, that, that will help. And also, you know, we've removed some of the quotas on our mountain lions in certain areas because we just say, hey, you know, this is what we're trying to achieve. And this is one tool that we're using to get there. But at the same time, it's fairly site-specific where we're not just going across the whole state and saying, this is what we need to do everywhere, because that's just not usually how wildlife management works. You know, I wish some of the folks on the Washington State Fish and Wildlife Commission would actually listen to you and some of your managers. They might learn a little bit about big game management, but we'll save that conversation for another time. In the meantime, always love catching up and getting the latest news from you, Roger, because like I said, there's always a lot going on in the Gem State. Hope you have a great weekend, sir. You too, John, and always great talking to you. Enjoy a meal of wild Alaskan seafood delivered right to your door. Sina Sea offers premium quality wild Alaskan fish and shellfish to include Copper River King and Silver Salmon, Halibut, Black Cod, King Crab, and of course, Copper River Sockeye Salmon. Order it blast frozen or smoked and experience a slice of Alaska for a special meal you won't forget. Buy your seafood now at SinaSea.com. That's S-E-N-A-S-E-A, SinaSea.com. Come to Oregon's Wallowa County for outdoors adventure. Hike, ride, paddle, fish, or sightsee to your heart's content. And then visit one of our wonderful towns, whether it be Joseph with its beautiful bronze statues, our county seat in Enterprise, or one of our charming small towns like Wallowa, Imnaha, or Troy, where you can eat, shop, and sleep before continuing your adventure the next day. Plan your visit now at WallowaCountyChamber.com. That's WallowaCountyChamber.com. 
fishing, and fun. That's what you'll find at Mardon Resort. Come to sunny eastern Washington and bring your RV or rent a cottage, cabin, or room at our newly upgraded resort at the south end of Potholes Reservoir. Get tackle and provisions at our general store. And after you're done fishing, hanging out at our swim beach, or boating for the day, enjoy dinner and a drink at the beach house. Find out more at mardonresort.com. That's mardonresort.com, where the fish bite and we don't. Sportsman's Warehouse is America's premier outfitter with the gear you need for fishing, hunting, camping, paddling, cooking, and just about anything else you can do in the woods or in the water. With over 125 stores across America, there is bound to be a Sportsman's Warehouse near you with not only the gear you need, but also the experts to help you get the most out of the product you purchase. Head down to your local Sportsman's Warehouse today or shop online anytime at sportsmans.com. That's sportsmans.com. Did you know we actually have a sponsorship opportunity available for this show? That's right. You can be a sponsor of Northwestern Outdoors Radio, reaching thousands of listeners every week, tuning in to 69 stations in seven states. If you have a business that caters to outdoors enthusiasts, this is the platform for you, and you're going to find it's much more affordable than you think. Contact me through my website at northwesternoutdoors.com, and let's get a conversation started. That's northwesternoutdoors.com. Before we go today, we've got time for one last shot of Northwestern Outdoors Radio with your host, John Cruz. Welcome back to the show. We've got a news item for you out of Wyoming, and I'm afraid it's not good news. They've had a really severe winter in the Cowboys state, and the Wyoming Game and Fish Department has growing concern over the potential impact of the weather over both pronghorn and mule deer in western Wyoming. All the snow this year is really putting a dent into the Wyoming range mule deer herd. Of 128 does that were wearing collars at the beginning of winter, 35% have been lost. This compares to an average year where 20% of the animals would be lost. And of the 92 juvenile deer collared, 90% of those animals have died to date. And with winter showing little sign of subsiding, those numbers, which are already well above average, are sure to keep climbing. It's even worse for the pronghorn herd south of Pinedale. Of 83 adult female pronghorns wearing GPS collars at the beginning of winter, some 50% of those animals have been lost, not only to winter conditions, but also pneumonia. And the pneumonia has come from a disease affecting the herd called Mycoplasma bovis, or M. bovis. As a matter of fact, since mid-February, between 250 and 300 pronghorn carcasses have been removed from the landscape by game and fish personnel, and it's estimated that over 500 pronghorn have died due to this illness. Here's hoping winter ends soon, but if you're a big game hunter for mule deer or pronghorn in western Wyoming, there'll be a whole lot fewer tags available, and it's going to take some time to rebuild these herds. On a brighter note, if you're looking for something to do next weekend in central Washington, you might want to stop by the Chelan County Fairgrounds in Kashmir and attend the annual North Central Washington Prospectors Gold Show. There'll be a number of vendors there sharing their love of mining and panning and dredging and sluicing and showing you how you can do it too and selling you items to help you do it because... There is gold, and then there are hills in the Cascade Mountains. So head on down there and participate. It should be a lot of fun. And now it's time for your Sportsman's Warehouse Trivia Question of the Week. 
And it is indeed about gold and other treasures. As a matter of fact, one of the states in our listening area is called the Treasure State. And that is your question. What is the state that has the nickname of the Treasure State? If you know the answer, you know what to do. You can email us through our website at northwesternoutdoors.com and give us your answer there. Or go to our Facebook page at Northwestern Outdoors Radio. Follow the page if you haven't already and then look for the post thread where we have the question and give us your answer there. One lucky person who guesses right wins that $25 gift card we give away every week from America's Premier Outfitter, which also has a few items to help you pan for gold, too. And on that note, we have got to go. So until next time, do take care, God bless, and make it a point to spend some time outdoors. A few years older, a little more wiser, more of a lover and less of a fighter. I married up, settled down, bought a little house just west of town. I got kids of my own. Man, they mean everything. But time is one thing you can't stop no matter how you try. You just take a deep breath.